Geegan, I am so happy to have you on the show and uh, we've known each other for a very long time. And uh, so many people know that I know you and they say, Mark Egan, wow, what's he really like? What, what, how does he do all that stuff? And what, you know, what, what kind of shoes does he wear and stuff like that? So, so um, I'm glad to have a chance to ask you about that. Good. Well, as far as shoes, uh, yeah. I've got on sandals right now. Oh, wow. Yeah, very nice. Yeah. Well, I, I, I look forward to inviting you to California where we can walk in the sand together. I would love that. I enjoyed when we last uh, did some music out there. It was great. Yeah, indeed. Well, here's the thing. I'm going to ask you a kind of a provocative kind of question because you are not just a master musician, but you are a master collaborator. And that's my question to you today. Why do you think you've been able to work with such disparate, and I do mean disparate, artists doing completely diametrically opposed things. What is it about you that makes you able to work with all of these different people? And that's a very good question, Richard. Um, I think it comes down to my personality. I mean, the way that I am, I can fit in a lot of different um, situations with people and the way that I relate to people. I'm I sort of, when I get into a situation, I'm all ears and I'm listening to what's happening, whether it's just meeting someone from the very beginning, even unrelated to music. It's sort of in all my relationships with people, I, I cross a lot of borders and boundaries and, and things. If it's in the spirit of what I want to do and I feel like it's they're amiable people, then I'm, I like to be there. And I think as that applies to my music, um, I'm a baby boomer. Uh, and I'm, I came from a lot of different styles of music. So I think um, I have a lot of different influences so that I, I'm attracted to a lot of different music. So I think that lends itself to being able to be in a lot of different situations, like you mentioned, and being open to trying different things and not just fixed in one area. I, I like a lot of different things and I'm, I'm not limited in that, in that way. I'm not just a jazz player, I'm not a funk player. I'm, I like extremely avant-garde music and extremely inside music, funk, straight, you know, down the middle. So um, I just like it if it's good. And I like it especially um, if I feel that I can be creative within it and, and sort yeah. of lift it to another area and, and have it be malleable so that we can, uh, you know, take it to some different places. So right. and I guess the, the, the basic, it basically comes from my personality, I think. Yes. And I, I really would say that we've worked together in a couple of situations and a couple of situations where there were perhaps there was perhaps a little bit of hair in the situation. <laughs> what I mean is it got hairy. And the, the, the thing about you is that you were as placid as a placid lake during any, you know, if things, you know, go slightly, you know, south or cartoonish you're you're just you've got that calm now uh, why do you think you have that i mean what about your upbringing in your life has given you this kind of nice calm maybe it's just you know phony and i don't you know you're not really <laughs> no, like, it's not. that's how it it's it seems funny. to us um i've you know i was blessed to have great parents that uh were very supportive and um really let me do what I wanted to do as far as playing music or whatever I wanted to do. They trusted in me and 
they gave me a lot of good values. So I think it all, I think much of it comes from upbringing. Mm -hmm. um, also the, again, the personality style that I am, I'm, I'm mellow, but I'm intense at the same time. I mean, it's obvious in the different types of music that I am, but it does take a lot to really ruffle me up, you know, to make me say, okay, whatever, in so many words, that's it, that's yeah. enough, I'm out of here. Right. Um, but my threshold is pretty high for that. So over the years, um, I think I've been more selective to keep away from things that I don't want to, that would maybe raise me to that threshold. But um, I, I think it's, I'm, I have a mellow personality, some yeah. people would say, but then other people know me and say, you're really intense, you know? <laughs> so, um, it, it really, it really is uh, multifaceted. A lot of philosophy and things that I believe in come from more of the Eastern philosophies and which yes. more meditational music. And yes, um, for some reason, I've always not to really change the conversation, but I've always been attracted to Eastern music and the music like of Ravi Shankar initially, and then yes. to all the music that's happening. So it's just a, the part of the way I am, you know? Yes. Uh, well, you know, we, you and I are exactly the same age, you know, which which makes oh, me understand very much what you're what you're talking about, uh, because as a baby boomer, we grew up at a time when variety was a good thing when, yeah. oh, look at this. That's nice. And oh, look at over here. This is really cool. And all the pop music of our generation when we were growing up was you know, the Beatles were not like the who, but we could like both of them. Yes. And, and so, so those, th those things, it's a different era now. Uh, but, but that actually helps us. And I, I think one of the things I was, well, this brings up two questions I want to ask you. Number one, how you feel about the music scene as it's developed through all those years? Because I mean, you and I have both seen a lot of changes throughout time of how the music business has changed and being working musicians within it, we had to deal with it. Now, I think you and I were really lucky in terms of being teenagers and being born at a time when music was so widely, uh, there was so much different kinds of music for, for Ravi Shankar, yes, on one level, and then that was brought into the Beatles. And then there was also the kind of blues and hard rock of things like Cream and whatever. So we had a lot of variety. And, and then we watched that kind of change over the years. Do you have any reflections on that? Uh, I do, you know, when it goes, it starts for me. I remember being in high school in 1968 or 69, uh, up in my room and listening to FM radio at the time. And it was WBCN, I think, in Boston, because I grew right. up in Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. And I remember listening and, you know, FM radio during that time period was, you might hear Ravi Shankar, and then the DJ would then play some Alan Watts reciting some of his writings. Right. And then I'd hear Jimi Hendrix, and then I'd hear Miles Davis and John Coltrane, and then I'd hear The Who, and like you said, The Beatles. And I related to all of it. It, it didn't yeah. seem compartmentalized, which is the way things have gotten now because of everything. Maybe just the because of the electronic revolution and just the way that everything is being described, the way that uh, people 
review records and they put it into different slots but i grew up where it didn't have those divisions it was just creative things it was just creative music so we are you and i are lucky that we were brought up during that time period and i the way i see it is it's just become gradually more and more and more compartmentalized so now oh he's a fusion player or if someone talks about oh he's a jazz bass player, oh he's a fretless player yes uh, how about music <laughs> Right, exactly. I play music, you know. So I play classical music. I play jazz. I play funk. I play rock. And right, my, my personal records seem to be in the. Uh, well, I know what they're, they're instrumental, improvisational compositions that are played by some yes. fun, great improvisers. And I might add how much I always enjoy your records. And the reason is because each composition that you write, all of your tunes have something to say they have one thing you know that this tune is about this kind of a thing and this tune whereas a lot of tunes are just about you know let's let's rock let's play but your tunes always have a little musical thing that's interesting about them that it's saying i'm doing this thing now check this out and i love that about your thing and then the other thing about it is your love of melody and i really think your voice on your instrument a lot of you have a lot of tunes on many of your albums where you're you know you're playing the melody and it's really singing it's like listening to a voice singing and that's you know a lot of people i'm, I'm sure you've had this throughout your life that you know oh yeah he's playing fretless so it's like a, a jocko clone but i don't think that's true at all and i don't think you sound like him at all and i think you sound like mark egan because of that love of melody and that singing quality and maybe i mean i guess i'll ask if that has anything to do with the fact that i know you also play trumpet yes i originally was a trumpet player and i think it has a lot to do with it i think um when you play a wind instrument and you play melodies you become acutely aware of articulations and you know, you don't just all play the whole thing legato, la 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 la. You know, it's you. It's just like talking. It's the same yeah. thing as talking or singing, and um, I carried that over to bass when I made a transformation from uh, trumpet over to bass. And I played trumpet all through high school in R and B bands, and we played the music of Wilson Pickett and James Brown. So I was in the horn section, spinning my trumpet and nice, nice. You know, playing background lines and, and improvising. But then I went to the University of Miami and I studied uh, jazz and music there. And uh, I was as a trumpet major, but I also played a little bit of bass. And so I gradually got more into playing bass until finally I just knew that that's what I had to do. But most of it came from the melodicness came from the trumpet playing, definitely. Yes. yes. And I think you have also, I mean, even just talking about forgetting your playing, your actual sound on your instrument, you have your own very, very attractive sound, I might might say, which okay. has, which has a lot of, I mean, how do you, I mean, I don't want to get into a bass nerd thing, but if you want to, you can, but I just kind of like to know how you get that, that beautiful sound that you get when you're playing melodies. What, what are your components that you put into that? Yeah, it's a, another great question. Um, well, first of all, it's a great instrument. Um, it's made by Padula, this, the bass that I play now. Yes. And it's green. It's green. Yeah, it's green. I, I love that green bass, man. Yeah, it's actually right behind me. I can see uh, it. Um, and so a lot of it, like, let's say someone just picked up 
the bass that I have and they just played it and you would say, oh, wow, that's a fretless bass, you know, and as soon as you hear fretless, you think of Jocko because he's, you know, made it so famous. Um, and then when you get into the detail of the instrument and actually putting your hands and your mind and your um, sensibilities to it, um, that's when it starts becoming an individual instrument and, and applying yourself to that sound. And that's what I did. And so um, personally, you know, to talk bass talk, I use a very low action. I use um, round wound strings and the fingerboard that I have is uh, it has a finish on it, acrylic finish. I use a very, very low action actually. So um, it gets a very, a lot of sustain, almost a buzz sound. And it's, um, it really lends itself to playing melodically, not yeah. unlike a cello would. Yeah. If, if you had that acrylic neck on a cello and you electrified it, it would be really similar. Yeah. Uh, it so, seems that you're because of that you you have a lot of responsiveness to your slight very slight subtle finger movements you know the vibrato that you're putting on it uh probably more so than 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 other players who are playing fretless or a big thing for me and i think again going back to having experienced and played trumpet for so many years was intonation mm -hmm. and you know because you're on a fretless instrument you got to really play in tune and that's I have lines on my instrument. I'm going to get my bass and show you. Yes, okay? please do. Yeah, I love that. I you know. actually the one behind me is fretted, but the fretless one. The fretless one is over there. The fretless one's over there. Yeah. <laughs> it's over here. There it is. Look how cute that is. It's, so this is the uh, the green, the, the other green. The dark green one. Yes, with the, oh, the te leopard skin pillbox green. Yeah. So that's it. And then you can hear even this. Can you hear that? Yes. Right. So yeah. even unplug what to me when I pick out an instrument, um, I don't even plug it in. I just actually the first thing I do is I put my ear up to the horn and just listen for what the sound of the instrument is. Yes. And, you know, it's important just to the sound of the instrument as it is played acoustically sure. like that. Sure. Uh, so those are like some of the elements that go into it. I think, um, as I said, I use a very low action. So it's, there's a lot of nuance. So you don't have to really pull hard to get the sound out of it. The downside of having a low in action, which means low action means if you're close to the strings, strings to the fingerboard. Yes. Is that the changes of seasons because the wood moves you have to constantly adjust the neck so you have to get some knowledge of adjusting your own instrument which is something yeah. that everyone should know how to do yes. um, and then once that's in and you have to have a good straight neck for that and those bases have that they have a really really nice adjustability to the necks right uh, so all of those things contribute to it and then it's the sensibility of how I want to voice a melody. And I'll never forget when I first started playing fretless, I said, wow, this is what a great instrument because you can play one melody an infinite amount of ways. Yes. And so I just said, wow. And you do that by sliding from below or down from yes. above and right. slightest amount of vibrato. And 
but I think you have to watch out with vibrato. It's like with singing and anything. Yeah, sure, absolutely. Yeah, it's a vibrato. It says, you know, it's too much. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, but I use it subtly and, and it sort of enhances and lengthens the notes. And then sometimes I play very uh, staccato without any vibrato or any. Yeah any type of buzz at all. So it depends on what the music calls for. So, yes, indeed. Uh, yeah. Some ways that I approach playing the melodies on the fretless. Right, right. And and lovely ways they are, big boy. Uh, <laughs> uh, the, once you start with that kind of ability, then we look at it, I'm going to look at it back from the other point of view is that when you are collaborating with all these people, you obviously have a, a lot to offer of different sounds, like if you're playing a funk gig or, uh, you know, a, a jazz gig, a straight ahead thing. So do you sometimes use different instruments than either the fretted one or the non fretted one? I mean, do you have others that you will use for a specific gig? Yes, I do. I have a fretted version of that bass, which is that's the one that's right there. Right. I mean. Um, and then I have several other, I have a Fender jazz bass, 1964 jazz bass that I've used a lot in studio work where you want to sound more like just a Motown sound and it just, right. it just sounds right. It just sounds great. And then I have several double neck basses, which is uh, eight string fretted, four string fretless. Those are more for my own music. Um, although I do play sure. eight string fretless on different, uh, records and things. But uh, yeah, I, it depends on what it's called for. A lot of times I play fretted. I don't, it's only if it really feels like something that needs a, more of the drone type of feel that sure. I'll use fretless on sure. it. Sure. Melodically. I remember the, pro we, the project we did in California uh, with Eric. Yeah, I played a lot of fretted on that. It seemed to need that center of tone because there was so much else going wrong because Eric was such a virtuoso I didn't want to get in the way and so yes and it was classical music there were more notes and I had I had there were, I had written you a lot of notes swine yeah, that I am you did <laughs> yes yeah um so that brings me again back to this collaboration thing I'll start with the easy side of the question what was the most fun collaboration you've ever had in all of your professional life? Probably would be my collaborations with the Gil Evans Orchestra. Right. Because that was the culmination of all the experiences that I've had in an atmosphere where we, we had free reign to be as creative as we want. And it was with some of the greatest players in the world. So Indeed. to me, that's what I would say, playing with Gil. I've got to ask, you to talk a little bit about Gil. Yes, please. Well, I, I just want you to give me a little idea about how how you met and and what what things he said to you while you were working with them and those those kinds of things, because I think people think of him as this mystical figure uh, on top of a mountain or, you know, somebody. But you got to work with the real guy. So I'd love to hear some of your fun experiences with him. Yes, well, I worked with Gil starting in 1982 or 83. And um, there was a, I think it was called the 55, not the 55 bar, uh, 50 Grand, I think it was Grand Street. 
right. there was a club there where a lot of people, we played with Hiram Bullock and Clifford Carter and Jocko was around. It was a hang down in, in the West Village. And um, Gil used to come to that sometimes and be there. And that's where I first met him. Actually, he had called me to play with him in 1980, but I was on the road with Pat Matheny. We had to do a rehearsal in Boston with Pat, so I couldn't do the Gil gig. Right. Um, it was a conflict. So that's when he had first called me up. And then we stayed in touch and I saw him at that club many times. And then finally he asked me if I wanted to join the Gil Evans Orchestra, which had a steady every Monday night stint at uh, Sweet Basil, which is a club in New York City. That was in 1983. So that was the first time that I played with him. And it was interesting because that first gig we did, there was no rehearsal. Here I was going to play with Gil Evans, who did Sketches of Spain and Miles Ahead Plus 19 and all the classic records that if anyone doesn't or hasn't heard of Gil Evans, I really highly recommend that they get some of those records and check them out. He had charts in the book. A lot of them were head charts. I was thinking we were going to be playing more through composed uh, pieces, but it was a lot more sketches that we did, which allowed for a lot of improvisation and a lot of uh, everyone to just come up with what they thought it should sound like. And one of the things that Gil would say to us is just play whatever you want, whenever you want. So imagine having that type of freedom. Exactly. You know, and plus having the respect of being around Gil Evans, who was Miles Davis's mentor. And so you know you're in the presence of really a high being when you're around him. Um, he wasn't, he was a very quiet man and wasn't forceful and would just, a lot of times the way a song would start out, he would just start at the piano and start playing a groove. And all of a sudden it would be, uh, it would be one of the Hendrix songs, uh, Up From The Skies that we did with him. And he'd be playing the groove and we'd go into it. There's no mention of who was gonna solo. People just stood up and played when they wanna play it. And the horn sections would come up with background parts that they invented. Lou Soloff was one of the big, uh, components of that band who mm. his amazing playing and his imagination and his uh his he had the audacity he come up with a part and and play it uh, and the trombone players or the saxophones in front and they would play it and then there'd be these background parts and it sounded like a composed band and i think that actually i know gill chose the musicians as composers players for that band and mm -hmm. so he picked people for their colors. So it, it's, it was an amazing experience to be in, with someone like Gil who was asking to contribute your music to his music and, yes. and have everyone doing the same thing. And you know, the result of that was um, some, we sometimes played on a really high level and it was great. And sometimes it was awful, you know, <laughs> but you don't get that without experimenting you know yes, so. you you have to be able to risk in order to achieve those things chris hunter a good friend of mine told me yeah, that exactly the same thing he said some nights it was just god awful and then some nights it was magic and yeah. and, and he said you just had to stay in there and 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 uh, hope for the best and hope that those combinations of planetary orbs were in the right place mm -hmm. and we um we did uh, record with that band live um, at Sweet Basil. There's several recordings, several volumes of that. And then we yeah. recorded with Sting with that band. Yes. 
because people, a lot of people, the word was out, a lot of people came by on Monday nights to hear the band. Sting was in there, Miles yeah. Davis came in, yeah. um, Mick Jagger, a lot of people. And yeah. as a result of Sting coming in, he wanted us to record on his record, which we did. We recorded on Little Wing on the uh, Nothing Like the Sun album. Right. Yeah. And then we toured with him in Italy and we did a live record in Italy with Gil Evans and Sting, which was an incredible experience. Mm. And it was similar in that it was the Gil Evans Orchestra doing their thing with Sting, playing his songs. And a lot of that was a little bit more structured and composed, but there's yeah, still- So I was gonna ask who, did, did Gil do the charts for that? There must've been charts for, for, for a Sting gig. Yes, we did, you know, we did Synchronicity, Tea in the Sahara, we did all, you know. Yeah, yeah. Roxanne. So there were horn parts for that that Gil had put together. Yes. Um, and I think um, a lot of that, there was a lot of spontaneousness with that too. George Adams was a saxophone player, as you mentioned, Chris Hunter. Yes. Um, so. You know, that was probably when you asked what is some of the favorite collaborations, I would say that's it. Absolutely. It incorporated so much. It was so much music, you know. Absolutely. And, and uh, I'm, you know, I'm so glad that you've been able to tell the Radio Richard crowd who's out there listening uh, about this, because I know that they, they are particularly interested in that. Um, another thing, I mean, I I have to ask about some other collaborations that you've done that people might think, wow, that's not, a, I didn't expect that. The, the, uh, the fact that you played with the Duran Duran thing, Arcadia, I would love to know how that came about and what that experience was like. Oh, sure. Well, you know, I've done and I do a lot of work uh, in the studio and during 1985, it was, I was at Right Track Recording working on another, actually our own record for our group Elements with Danny Gottlieb. Right, Elephants. Uh, elephants. And then in the <laughs> other room, uh, the great producer, uh, Alex Sadkin, who since passed away, was recording Foreigner, you know. So it wasn't unusual in New York to be in a studio and they'd book out one of the main rooms and then you'd be doing other sessions in other rooms. And we'd sort of meet in the hallway and different things. And I had known Alex Sadkin from my Miami days when I was in the university and also we used to record at Criteria Studios in Miami, which is a great studio, was a great studio. And he was a, an assistant engineer then. And I was playing with Hiram Bullock, Clifford Carter and Billy Bowker was the rhythm section. And he would get us in at night for free to, we could record all night that, <laughs> because no one was there. And so we would go in and do these all night sessions there. And um, that's when I met Alex, mm. Alex Sadkin, who coincidentally was a saxophone player originally who played in Los Olas Brass with uh, Jaco Pastorius. Hmm. So he was an old friend of Jaco's from way back. And he later got into uh, doing engineering at Criteria and then started producing. And then he produced Simply Red, Grace Jones. Um, Indeed. Many people, he was a big, big, uh, <clears throat> for Island Records. So Alex was producing Foreigner. They were doing uh, that big hit, I want to know what love is. Sure, sure. That was in the next room, which I couldn't believe hearing that. That was amazing. Yeah. But Alex came out and he said, hey, Mark, how's it going? I said, great. You know, and uh, he said, would you be interested in 
playing with the guys from Duran Duran and they're doing a different project. It wasn't named as of yet. It was Simon Lebon and Nick Rhodes were doing a duo project. Right. So I said, absolutely, I'd love to. So he mentioned my name to them and long story short, they called me, their manager called me and talked to my manager and we hooked it up. And about maybe a month later, I was in Paris for six weeks recording the album Arcadia, So Read the Rose. Um, and it's so funny because I recently saw an interview by Nick Rhodes, the keyboard yeah. player with him. And he was talking about when he first met me at the sessions in France, in Paris. Right. And he said, you know, Alex recommended this bass player, Mark Egan, you know, this guy plays like he's from Mars or something. <laughs> <laughs> I said, oh, wow. So I guess compared to what they had been used to, and John Taylor is a great bass player. I love John Taylor's yeah. work, you know? Yeah. Yeah. He's, he grooves so hard. He's great, came up with great bass parts, but it was so different from them because I was, I came in and I was, you know, had been playing with Gil Evans at that point. I was right in the middle with Gil and um, do, playing with our group Elements, Elephants. Yeah, yeah. And, and so I just brought everything that I, to the table that I do. Yeah. Know. And so we would do tracks and um, we did, uh, we did that record and it was an amazing creative experience. Steve yeah, there's some really nice tracks and I love the fact that they actually, uh, you know, every once in a while you, you play a melody and it's, and it's so great. You know, to hear that it, yeah. in that context, and there's a lot of electro stuff going on, I'd still hear, oh, there comes Mark playing a beautiful melody, you know, and it, it's, it was a nice combination of elements mm. and elements. They, <laughs> yeah. uh, and they were very uh, open for experimentation, like I said. It was an interesting way that they did the recording because we would go in and they would, they had these sketches that were, they had made at that time cassettes of. Right. Yeah. Uh, there were ideas for the song. Nothing was written out per se. Um, and we would go into the control room and listen to what the idea was for the song, the basic groove. And that some of them had full lyrics. Some of them were, they were in motion of getting them together. Mm -hmm. And then other things were just instrumental, which are on the record as well. Yeah. Uh, and then we would go in and start playing in the studio, come up with some grooves, get some basic things, and it would evolve. So it was a nice way of doing it. Of uh, you know, we had the they had just come off multi-platinum. Oh yeah, no. Happened. So they the, the studio was wide open. They were just it was experimentation time. So yes, yes. Well, I, yeah. as I, as I've said many times before, all you need to make great records is time and money. And I got that years and years before from Cat Stevens, who said, that's all you need to make great records. You need time to do it and you right. need money to hire the very best musicians and then let them work, you know. Exactly. Yeah. And, and some of the, a lot of the time, what we would do is we'd finally, by the end of the day or the end of the night, because it would get late, we would have something that was close to being something that we could next, maybe work on the next day. But they always said, well, let's start at 11 in the morning, but no one would really show up until four in the afternoon. Yes. But Alex was there at noontime or 11, and I would be there because we were staying in the hotel. It was Grand Army yeah. Hotel, which is above the studio. It's, and so I didn't have, I didn't, all I wanted to do was play anyway. So I would go down, we would listen to what we did the night before. And the guys went there from Duran Duran. Um, and then Alex and I and the engineer, uh, Larry, I'd go in and then do five more takes 
of things that I thought that might sure. be would go along with it. So then they would come back later and they say they'd pick different pieces and different things. And then yeah. they'd say, why don't you do a whole one that's this and that. And so we had the leisure of doing all that. And that's it, nice. It yeah, nice. very nice. Um, I'm now going to ask you the more difficult side of the question, which is what was perhaps the most unpleasant or just difficult session that you've ever been called upon to do? Right. Well, here's one, and I have a couple, but this is a live playing situation where I was playing with the Manhattan Transfer in Israel at the Red Sea Festival in Eilat. And it's an outdoor festival, and all the stages are made out of these big, huge shipping containers that you see on the giant ships. Right. Yeah. Made into like a U. So we're in there. It's in the summertime. It's a hundred and whatever degrees. It's so hot. And later in the afternoon, the wind comes and it's heavy wind. So we're getting ready to play this big concert. It's sold out. Uh, I'm, you know, I get all my music in order. I have a piece of plexiglass on the music with things that hold it down. So, cause I knew it was going to be windy. They count off the first piece and this huge gust of wind and blows the whole stand off the stage and all my music goes flying in the air and out into the audience. And the band has already started, they're singing, and then we're in the middle of this. And I was reading, I, I didn't I didn't have it memorized because I hadn't played with them that long. It was the first or second tour. So I, I didn't know what to do. I was <laughs> it's one it's like a bad dream, you know? Yeah, sure. And so um what I ended up doing was the uh, the tenor saxophone player was in front of me and I had to read his music and transpose down and do the whole concert like that, which was luckily I can transpose, but it was it was an awful feeling. And not only that, but the leader was saying, come on, man, what's the matter? <laughs> I don't have any music, you know, <laughs> so it was that was a difficult one. That was. Yeah, yeah, that's 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 rough. And, and we got through it and, and it worked out. Actually, it was actually a good show, but and it was reading Reading the tenor sax part, man, I mean, that still didn't give you much idea about a bass part. No, but I had chords, so I just had the transpose. Oh, I see, I see, got it. Yeah. Sort of new, but anyway, that was something. But in the studio, I remember, you know, I've done a lot of different, a wide range of studio sessions as you have, but I did a lot of commercials in New York. Yes. And there was one for um, Pac-Man Serial. Pac-Man was a, a video game, one of the early video games. Yes. And it was for Pac-Man Pac Serial, and it was a sort of a techno type of part, do, 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 like almost a synchronized program bass part. Right, yes, yes. Very exact like that because I was doubling a synthesizer part. Yes. I had just come from my orthodontist. Oh, no. I just had gum surgery. <laughs> I asked the orthodontist, is it okay? Can I go to this recording session? Am I going to be all right? He goes, you'll be fine. Just take some aspirin. I'm going to give you some this um, painkiller, but don't take it till you get home. You should be fine. Anyway, right as I started the session, the session, one of the worst producers was there and he was riding me the whole time and saying, you know, it's not exact. You're out of tune. You're, you know, it, it, it was incredibly difficult i was ready to throw the music stand at this guy you talk about my threshold yeah yeah i got there i was there <laughs> and then all of a sudden 
the meds started to wear off. So that was probably the worst session for me. I got through it and it, it came out great, but I was holding on for dear life. And so yeah. the moral of the story is don't get surgery before a session. And, no, it's really a mistake. And if anything you do with any type of surgery, aside from playing, add a week on to what a doctor says is going to be the time it takes to absolutely you know, and you also know, get better quality drugs and better quality drugs which i, I don't like to take that stuff I, no yeah but but you know since then i've been in situations where you know routine procedures for things and i say well what can i expect well you'll be fine in a day yeah 10 days later i'm yeah, exactly. this thing so Anyway, I don't want to sidetrack with that, but it's no. that's important. And I always ask doctors, I said, how long? I said, no, really, 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 really. Tell me yeah. how long is it going to be? So, yes, I well, I think that's a great story. And uh, both of those stories are very instructive and it's fantastic. You're one of the few people who, who agrees to answer those questions because everybody yeah. wants to seem like their life is, you know, golden and nothing has ever gone wrong. Whereas, no, but those those two stick out as being there are a couple of other co collaborations you've done which i found was you know unusual roger daltrey now i did a roger daltrey album so i'd love to know what what yours was um i did uh i think i did a song called love or something like that it was love song i'm not sure um i've been working with a producer in new york i had been doing a number of sessions for him and he happened to be producing roger's record and he asked if i would play on it and i said yes and I didn't meet Roger at the actual session. I met him uh, at the Beacon Theater in New York. Right. At some event there. And I said, yeah, I played on your record. And he was very nice. And yeah. it was nice playing with him. I, I've been a big fan of theirs for a long time. Of course. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 uh, I worked on a Roger Daltrey album with the producer Alan Shacklock. And I've just recently done a video with Alan Shacklock, who's a great musician and, and uh, producer. And it was just interesting revisiting those days and, and seeing how things come along. Because people, you know, again, you said earlier, people like to pigeonhole people. They like to typecast you and say, oh, yeah, Mark Egan, he's a jazz guy, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, but, but they don't realize that we're actually musicians and that we can do many things because we are musicians and we're not yeah, just yeah. We're not, there's no law that says you can't play x if you can play y exactly. um, it's so true one interesting thing that i think you could offer to people is just a little bit of advice to young musicians coming up uh considering the way you've seen music change what i always feel is it's likely to change again. So what advice would you give to people who want to become, I've just written a book called How to Become an Employable Musician. So I'd love any kind of pointers you'd like to give people on that. Mm -hmm. well, I, I got to check out your book. That sounds like a great book. It's a short little handbook called How to Become an Employable Musician. But, nice. but, but I, I'd love any little pointers from you that you could give to these uh, young chaps and chapesses about what, what's, what they're in for. Right. <laughs> well, it's, you know, it's a changed world from when we started playing as far as um, a lot of the opportunities. But I think the one thread uh, for me that I would pass on to someone who's just getting into it now would be to really follow your heart. I know it sounds 
maybe corny, but uh, it's not. And to if you really believe in something and, and are open, just keep going after that pureness of that music. I always wanted to be around creative music and around different people. So that my curiosity with wanting to be with good players and play creative music and the more I heard and the more I discovered people like Miles Davis and Jimi Hendrix and Cream and John Coltrane and John Cage and yeah yeah <laughs> all the Johns all um, the Johns yeah <laughs> uh, I, I realized the depth of the music and at the same time I realized how important it was to go to the roots and find not only the original people that have done it, but other people that have been influenced by that. And just to try finding the threads that are going through all the different musics that we're hearing now and we like. So if you like a certain groove and it, it resonates with you, you know, try to find out what the source of that was and take whatever it is that you're listening to and try to learn that. But I know for me, with regards to the vocational aspect of music and being able to earn a living and, and play with people, um, Whenever I was called to play with a band from the very first time that I played, uh, started to play bass, the very first gig that I played on bass, uh, this guy named Jet Nero, who was a saxophone player in Miami, called me. He had seen me, he had been to my house and saw a bass in my house that I shared with someone else. <laughs> and he said, oh, has someone played bass here? And, and they said, yeah, Mark does. And so he called me and said, could you play at the Checkmate Lounge or something this right. in a couple nights? And I said, yeah, I'm gutsy. I said, sure. You know, because I just, I knew I could do it. Even though I, I played one finger bass at that time with the nice. left hand and yeah. the right hand. Okay. Uh, no technique. I was a professional trumpet player. So yeah. I knew all the songs. It was, this happened to be a jazz gig. So I asked him, I called the piano player that played with him, my friend, Jeff Leibson. I said, Jeff, what songs do you play with him? And he gave me a list of all the songs, which I knew from playing trumpet. But mm -hmm. I learned them on bass in the next two days. Wow. And then I did the gig. And I'll never forget, at the end of the gig, it went really well. He said, you want to play with me steady on the, you know, do you want to go steady? <laughs> and I said, sure. So I played at these little funky lounges, even though I was playing, you know, as a trumpet major at the university, I started right. playing a lot of bass. And it was only because I took that leap of faith. But I also did some serious shedding in two days so that I wouldn't stink at it, you know? Exactly, exactly, yeah. So, and that has been the case all through my career. If someone calls me to do a gig or something, I'll say, send me the music. And just like I did when we did the project with Eric, with yeah. you. Yeah. And, um, and I shed it, I study it, I go in on it. And I remember when I first came to New York, another example, uh, Diodato, the famous Right, yes. The composer who had 2001. Uh, Indeed, yes. Another of your amazing credits. And so playing with him, he called me one day. Uh, Jeff Berlin, the great bass player, yes. recommended me to play with him. So Diodato called me right when I was first in New York. And he said, um, I'm doing a tour. Who have you played with? And I said, well, I just got off the road with the Pointer Sisters. He goes, OK, do you want to go to um, Australia for a month? He hadn't even heard me play. Right, nice. I said, great, what songs are we gonna do? He sent me all the songs. I memorized everything. At that time, it was on a record player. Right. I wrote my own charts. I shed heavily. I always shed heavily. Yeah. And you can't get work 
or be good unless you put the time in. And that's probably the universal theme of what I'm trying to say is you really have to work. And the more work you do, the deeper you'll see that you have to get and do more work. So in some ways, it's a, uh, it's a sentence. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. When you see what's involved with it and the depth of what it is and how great people become great, you see how much time you have to put in. And I love doing it. I love playing. I love practicing. I love, I love it. I just, I love, you know, I wake up in the, in the day, in the morning and I, I'll start practicing. I'll just turn the tape on and I'll just start maybe playing something ideas. And so I think if you can keep that open mind and that open framework and combine that with discipline, I think you can get someplace. Absolutely fabulous advice. And uh, I only wish that my book could, could include some of that in, in it, but it does have similar uh, statements. So, so I'm really glad to have you uh, say that. Okay. And not only that, Mark, um, I just think that everyone uh, looking at your career uh, will get a lot from the fact that you've been able to apply yourself to everything with such style and still remain yourself and have your own voice. And, uh, you know, a lot of people think that if you playing with somebody else, you lose yourself. In fact, no, you add to yourself. I always think, you know, yeah. you're adding, you're adding to your, to your world, not, yeah. not, not, you know, being, they feel it's some kind of slavery. No, it's not. It's, uh, it's, it's just increasing your love of music. And I think your career has been really an example of that. Okay. And, uh, and I'm very, very glad that you've taken the time to come on uh, Radio Richard. Oh, thanks, Richard. And, you know, just one thing I want to add about that last concept we were talking about, sure. another really important thing um, is social skills and being on time at the right place at the right time and being on time at the right place at the right time, but um, being a positive person and being good, people will want to be around you. You know, if you're not a nice person, people aren't going to want you to play with them, you know? And I've been around enough people like that in music that I don't want to play with them. I, I don't, it's not my thing, you know? Mm -hmm. But, you know, thanks so much, Richard. I appreciate it. And uh, I appreciate all the experiences you and I have shared together and, uh, Playing on your record was a pleasure with Danny. Yeah. At your studio in Chiswick. Yes, that's right. And in fact, I'm going to play for everybody now. I'm going to play that track uh, and and uh, let everybody hear what we did together in the in that nice little garden studio. Great. And, and, I, and I, I also want to do another show when we get a chance with you and Danny uh, about your fantastic new record, which I love. And it's the ideal record for me to to chill out in the car when I have a long drive, and I, I just love it. Right. I'm glad you're enjoying it. Electric Blue, indeed. Right. And, uh, and uh, I'm so happy. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Richard.
Thank you.